Hello, everyone. We're back. Centered subject is back. I am Elena, and Jenny is also here. Hello. I'm feeling fairly existential, which is appropriate for an existential entertainment hour. Yes. And we are today discussing a variety of topics that relate to the nature of belonging and home and place and how we got to a sort of interesting position where we find ourselves somewhat displaced and I just feel like there's a lot of kind of confusion. I mean the postmodern condition is to blame. I feel like we're in a moment where we're revising oh like people are trying to find moral compass maybe mm-hmm. and yeah. it's connected to um, this feeling of maybe feeling isolated and displaced and so mm-hmm. there's a search for place where one feels at home essentially yeah. so right. how are these ideas of home and belonging have have changed over the past however many years I'm thinking I was sort of thinking about um, the moment the post-World War II moment which I always go back to because it was a time of rebuilding a new society and it sort of feels like an era that we're that's the predecessant of what was mm. what led us here right yeah things are in deep flux right now somehow and people are reacting to it and it's and new things are happening that we're trying to pick up the pieces yeah. well we look back also we look back at history and previous experiences to find our way yeah i think so i think i do yeah it's it's as if like we were sort of released for a moment from all ideas of old you know and there's kind of no no truth in a way you can just devise your life the way you want I actually struggle with that freedom yeah the freedom the infinite freedom kind of um, makes you feel a bit lost how's your home right now what's going on in your home I think maybe that's also connected my home because I'm leaving next week and I've had to sublet it and it already feels so I'm in this kind of partially gone emotionally already mm-hmm. um, but also here and concerned about how my home will welcome <laughs> <laughs> the Austrian friends that will inhabit it for the next few months yeah it's, it just always feels unstable because it's um, you know LA is always getting ever more expensive mm-hmm. and things feel potentially precarious at all times so even though this is my home it is also not really my home. Will it be my home? I mean, there's no certainty mm-hmm. in anything, but it yeah. feels, yeah, it, it feels, it feels like it fulfills a function, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think it provides an answer of belonging anyway. Right. How's your home? It's okay. I have like turned over a, a new leaf or something about, about it you know like I don't know how you are but sometimes I can't move things around Mm -hmm. in my room or in my home and I feel like they're very heavy yeah objects can really feel oppressive yeah but the last couple days I was able to move certain objects around and it was kind of amazing it was like when you're editing a sentence how like if you move two Mm -hmm. two or three words it just like becomes something really uh I don't know lovely you know like the sentence kind of works better so now my room just has a lot it just feels so much better and so because of that I feel free more free because of some of the things that I've done I found myself inching towards Marie Kondo's ideas 
Sure. Which was really surprising. And um, I got really into folding. And I'm always late to the game of like every cultural thing like that. And I was really against it. But yeah, I'm a big proponent of folding now. Well, it's order. Order provides comfort. You know, there's a sense of control right. and, and care. Yeah. Like there is a care that happens, you know. Yeah. It's, I, I just am very in my body recently. And so there's this feeling like she says, you can use your palm to, to smooth out wrinkles. And there's yeah. just something really beautiful about a warm shirt and your palm kind of grazing across it you know not in this way of like I hate wrinkles and you got to get out but just hello I'm making contact with you fabric and and warm fabric and now it is flat oh it was just like yeah that was my like I, I had a very mystical laundry experience on Sunday and um yeah, I'm I'm loving it. I've decided to instead of to like conceptualize a domestic outside of my current experience, which is something I do. I I'm trying to instead go deeper into the domestic fear sphere that I have. The, the domestic fear that I have. I'm facing my domestic fears. Yeah, I mean, I have a history of facing domestic fears. I <laughs> I think I always thought of myself as someone who doesn't really I mean I enjoy nice design and clean space but I don't really enjoy the steps that take me there yeah so I I lean on others for help yes (laughs) I know in my previous in my previous relationship I was quite lucky to partner with someone who was very grounded in objects and um, had a really good sense of where they go whereas I just I mean perhaps I think I assign too much entity to them uh-huh. And so, you know, I contemplate them too much rather than just take leadership over where they should go. I feel like they take leadership of me, if anything. I do think you respect them, like, a lot more than you need to. Like, you you it's know, true. you include them in, in your moral circle as, like, your your friends and yeah. colleagues. And in a way, like, they, they become unruly. Like, I've experienced that. Yeah. Maybe a sculptural, that's my um, sculptural leanings. You know, where, yeah, I, where I take them quite seriously. But I think it's nice to have an intimacy with them the way you describe touching yeah. your laundry because I think especially now when we're surrounded by these visible and invisible presence of potential objects that we should own or that will... I mean, yeah. in general, as a society, we assign a lot of value to things as signifiers of our well-being, I think. Mm-hmm. And... There are so, like, sort of an infinite amount of them, and you can, you know, they show up in your Instagram right. feed of advertising. And so it's nice to just, like, form a connection with something that you do have and right. a relationship. Yeah, they're, they're real. It's really strange to experience it. And I, I don't have faith that I'm going to experience something like that just in, just in like, housework or whatever and enjoy it. And I often don't, and it's very... Horrible, you know, it just feels bad, and I get tired, and it's frustrating. But there are these moments of contact between myself and like an object, or myself and my own effort, or something. That yeah, that surprises me. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's nice to take care with anything and be yeah. patient and not run off to the next thing, but just be present, right, in the quietude of space. I agree. I also, I have to add though, I wasn't able to do this, you know, when I was sort of adrift and not quite working and waiting for school to begin again. Like it was much more difficult to do this sort of thing 
and get my shit done, but in this kind of deeper way until I started going back to school. And then I had Mm. these, I had ideas keeping me company Mm. and I had concepts that I had to perceive, like, you know, think about. The idea of your role as well, of who you are, maybe, you know, once you have kind of an intention about your overall purpose, you know, you're studying, you must set up your space for studying, you must, you know, but I think whenever there is not that kind of clear path, right to yourself what you're I think you're right what you're for it's easy to fall between and to have kind of an existential crisis of sorts because you don't have a role you don't know you don't have a future yeah Yeah, a role we we play and we believe in we have to sort of believe in that role yeah I have I have a hard time with that I think I have that I really have that issue where I wake up every morning and I feel like I have to, you know, just draw the map for my life almost every day <laughs> somehow. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah. what is the meaning of life again? You know, I just really have to right. sort of figure it out every morning. It's a burden, but I think some people don't do that work. And then they just go through their what's expected of them all the time. And then suddenly, you know, they're faced with all of that work that they didn't do at a moment of crisis. Mm. Instead of, so is that better than just having like a crisis every morning? Is that, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> do they do they equal each other? I think that perhaps it's better to just have an occasional one rather than... Yeah. Uh, I always am jealous of that person also, but... Um, so jealous. I, if I you're know, out I'm, there, I'm please so, tell us your experience. Maybe people just like don't even... Oh, it's impossible. You have to have crises. They're part of life. But um, yeah, I don't know. We'd like to have, know how to not recreate... Uh, our existential wheel every single day but I think that is the human responsibility honestly um we are we are our own pets yeah (laughs) and it's just not gonna change and we have to take care of them and also we need meaning you know as as these animals that we are with these brains that we have and Mm -hmm. I mean you know, it's, I guess it's what you, the payment that you kind of owe to yourself. As yeah. A, and I think it also connects to that, to these ideas of who you think, you know, I think people often assume that reality or they idealize the situation they're in mm-hmm. um, and they don't really pay attention to the actual reality that's happening. Mm. Actually, this one story that I um, wanted to discuss a little bit, I read this in the cities section of the guardian um it's a piece by nate burke called drive through brothels why cities are building sexual infrastructure basically sex work has always been around right that even the moniker the the most ancient profession um but it's always being kind of moralized against and pushed aside or traditionally right had been pushed aside and so now there's a kind of we're seeing a movement towards um, including it in the city's infrastructure, which I thought was a nice move towards seeing things as they are rather than pretending that sex doesn't happen in this kind of unsanctioned ways where, or in right. a transactional fashion. Right. So I guess it's um, happening in, in Germany and New Zealand and Cologne. And, um, of course... I thought how interesting, you know, it just contrasts so much with the U.S. where, right. in a way, it really reminds me of, that there is a there is a funny thing that happened, I think, in the 80s where uh, a Soviet, there was like a Soviet delegation, I think, that came to the States and they were like discussing issues and, and someone asked about like, well, you know, what about like sex? And then one of the women 
said, oh, there's no sex in Soviet Union. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> but this is true. Actually, it's like another parallel, I feel like, to the way that that kind of ideology is also really in line with the Protestant-based mm-hmm. ideology that we have. Here I didn't know that. Movement. Is that true? Um, yeah. No, I mean, it's true. People just didn't have said so we we procreated miraculously. It was really like through, through eggs, eggs, <laughs> fertilized communist eggs. Really? Were no. they were they red? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. They were red, like the red flags that my therapist told me not you know to be aware of. But she didn't realize that I love red flags because I'm a Soviet born. Yeah. So red eggs, red flags, love them all. You were a red egg. Hmm. Anyway, I thought it was cool that they were building facilities specifically for sex and just kind of paying attention to that more in the infrastructure rather than adhering right. to some bizarre there's no denial ideal, denial yeah denial yeah Ugh, yeah, yeah um, which also let leaves uh the sex face workers, the painful truth yeah. yeah and leaves the sex workers very vulnerable if you deny yeah, what they're doing so exactly. like yeah what i liked about this project is that it is puts a lot of the power in the sex workers hands so that they you know they enter the car it's like you're supposed to only do it in cars and the driver of the car's door can't open like you it's like these little yeah. drive th- mm-hmm. drive-ins which architecturally are disturbing but whatever <laughs> um not not sexy yeah. but you know whatever uh I, I suppose cars are sexy like having sex in cars is sexy to me, it is. So yeah, sure, yeah. I think there's there's. That. I'm from Houston. Like, there's a thing. Yeah. Well, it's also very cinematic. You know, it has this whole history, right? Like, that's kind of how right. casual sex became normalized in the 20s. You know, because people right. started driving, and so whereas before they didn't have somewhere to be alone, then they had the car, and so right. it is definitely a sexualized object. Plus, like just the way it's marketed and and designed is often like right. quite sexy. I've had experiences before um, with my lovers. To quote uh, Marianne Williamson. Again, because she, only, <laughs> I've only heard her use the term lover, not like partner or anything. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Ah, but um, where you know we didn't have anywhere to go, and it was it was actually kind of tawdry and strange. Like we couldn't go to each other's houses. We had to, and it was you know there were this was like in a New York situation, so there were no cars. But if there had been a car, it would have been great because there is this feeling. There is this thing about. I don't know. I mean, certain unsanctioned sexual actions or secretive sexual actions yeah, where it's like, it's stimulating. You know, sure. The car, the car becomes like a transitional space where you're free and yet you're private, you know? Um, and yet public at the same time. Right. Because and you can get away. Street. Yeah. Right. And then I suppose that's why the abuse happens so often, right? Because then the, right. you know, the people who are taking part in sex are, then can just sort of abuse the sex worker and shove them out of the car and then mm-hmm. run away. You know, mm-hmm. there's this like lack of responsibility in a place, in a sense of place, you know? So in this context, it's great because, you know, they can just get in and get out of the car. And right. Then so the-, the way that they described it is like, so it's a sort of um, a kind of a parking space where you have to drive in in such a way that the driver's um, door cannot open when you're there but the the passenger's door can be open freely so the idea that the person can um the sex worker can escape easily should things go south um whereas the driver would have to and i feel like it would be hard for them to chase the sex because they'd have to get over the like the steering wheel and the that's right yeah the stick the stick shift (laughs) 
yeah. and then there there's a social worker who's there and yeah. I think it's like kind of the, it's a sanctioned area so yeah it's interesting um, I really liked I don't think in that article they had interviews with people who had taken part in it but I'm they curious didn't. about yeah it was sort of yeah. more of an overview of different policies right. that are taking place but there wasn't really field work done as to how it changes yeah. people's experiences right right Interesting. So we have another uh, car thing to discuss. Yeah. Which is weird because we wanted to talk about sense of home and belonging. And here we are well, talking about two car situations. But that is where we are. Well, I that, think, yeah. Mm-hmm. As a people. I, wa- I just wanted to like talk to you about this woman and this phenomenon that I've seen yeah. on YouTube. Katie of, Carney. Uh, Katie Carney. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shout out. Um, I feel like I know her because I watched her. I wa- when I was placeless and rollless, I got really interested in her life, as mm-hmm. did like million. I don't know how many followers she has on YouTube, but she's she's like a YouTube star and makes a lot of her money from doing YouTube videos, living in her car, driving mm-hmm. around the country, and sh- and it's like she'll show you how she lives in her car and she'll drive into truck stops in different places and she sets up her bed and it's a tiny car and it looks horrible. Like I would never do that, but she loves her car and she's, you know, trying to, she's, you know, somewhat beautiful young woman. And so she has this sort of like, it's a strange mobile minimalism that connects to kind of carefree and right. You know, carefree and famous roaming nomadic, you know, it's just sort of in a way, presents a kind of ideal of escape from the kind of mundane existence right. that most people lead, which is very routine and that's right. um, nine to five. And she talks about that house. That was her escape. Right. And she wanted to do that. This is what she, her dream. She always had this dream. And so she did it for six months or something. And then she committed mm-hmm. to it for the rest of her life. And then her work, because our, our economy is so displaced or is, I don't know, placeless in some, in some ways, um, she could become a nomad and, and the economy would support it. And then yeah. her fame um, from doing this and her skill at like making these videos um, became really like what put it over the top. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I find it so strange watching her because it's so deeply intimate and yet so alienating at the same time. Um, and I don't, do I feel judgmental towards her i guess i do you do or oh. i'm worried about her yeah i'm i mean the first thing that i think yeah when i read uh, rather when you you know when you sent me when i watched it i did i think the first thought that crossed my mind is how vulnerable that situation yeah. feels you know right yeah it feels precarious and also because it's strange particularly also again from point of view i think la new york you know are similarly um affected by a housing crisis you know yes. where a lot of people are forced to live in their cars and sometimes it's really like a tragic dire situation where it's like That's people, right. you know with families or you know it's so far from that idea of freedom and minimalism but rather like a forced situation that's painful right and so it's strange to watch you know because usually it's a sign of distress mm-hmm. you know people living in their cars so right Right, and so she's like normalizing it she normalizes it which is kind of scary in a way you know because I think yeah. it also I think there's something about empathy that mm-hmm. um, we, I mean, I think in general as a society, we're just increasingly less and less susceptible to empathy because we're so right. locked in our own heads. And there's just so much misery that's constantly being thrown at you from news mm-hmm. cycle. You just can't contain it all. Um, so yeah. there's just like less sense of 
wanting to help people. And I think in a way she stands at this evidence of like, well, okay, well, if you, you know, some people just really enjoy living in their car, you know, with, right. you know, just like maybe they should just embrace their situation. And, you know, they've made certain choices in their lives and, you know, that led them to this car. And so, mm-hmm. you know, let them roam, you know, they're free. Right. And so I think it's just, yeah, it's, uh, it's strange and that it brings out those kind of feelings. And it's also like you always just hear, you know, in LA, they're always trying to kind of come up with all these ways for people not to be able to park somewhere overnight or like, Mm-hmm. There is this law that they were trying to pass where, you know, you couldn't basically that it would be illegal to be on a sidewalk near like an entrance and near like a parking lot. But basically like sort of a long litany of places where you just can't be on a sidewalk, like be sitting or right. reclining on a sidewalk. And then like, where can you? But when you live in a city where, which is completely unaffordable, like. You know, you might as well just what go and kill yourself or something if you can't even like sit on the sidewalk. Right. Like, what is the alternative? So. Right, and she she talks about that, which I think is interesting that that it makes her so frustrated and mad that you have to pay rent in order to actually be a citizen, and mm-hmm. raises some interesting ideas about that. And I think a part of her thing, I don't know why I want to. I want to support her perspective right now, but, um, is it, I think she thinks she's motivating people who are forced to live in their cars. Um, Well, there, yeah, there's exactly right. And, and giving them tips, which, which it's true. There is a system. But it normalizes the system. You're right. You're right. But also, I mean, I think the other awful thing is that, um, kind of being in a car in a way is also woven into our kind of living infrastructure system you know where it's like it's right. legalized and in so many ways well obviously again LA you can't even get really from point A to point B as a body you know you have to have the vehicle but also like mm. if you wanted to dro- go to a drive through you actually cannot <laughs> walk up you have to drive you know oh. so there are all these funny situations where you like you must have this giant object to like that's right. To be to be proof that you're human and you like are worthy of attention somehow. Yeah. Just wrong. In, in contrast, I will like be proud of my choice to leave cars behind, and which is like a yeah. big reason why I left that world and came to New York. The opposite is true. Where as a pedestrian, and I'm like guilty of this also. Like we have this like sense of entitlement where we'll just kind of bust out into the street a lot of times and you know we try to pay attention to where cars are coming but that's like a deciding factor you can tell if somebody's a new yorker if not or not by like how quickly they dart out into the street and like you know i've had people come from outside of new york and they'll like stop me and think they're saving my life and i'll be like no this is the flow of traffic like we're doing this that car's way far away and I'm like, hey, I'm dry. You know, I'm walking here. I'm dry. This is how I'm driving. Like, this is how we do it. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I saw a video of New York City that my brother sent. My brother is obsessed with um, like turn of the century New York City videos, and okay. he's always yeah. my all my family. They is, are very cute. Like, yeah, it's very nice. historical. Yeah. And um, he sent me this one, and it was so funny. Like, it was even worse, of course, because like cars hadn't really set their horses and cars all together (laughs) but everyone was just like hardcore competing for the right of way and it was kind of beautiful to see because like that is still the way it works here i mean magnificent symphony of movement right that's what it's like to be in new york and and like that's a cultural language that that's preserved you know and uh it's tiring as hell yeah well some some urbanists actually propose that as an alternative because they say um you know when you have all this signage um it kind of deadens people's awareness and attention you know they sort of focus on this one thing but when you're kind of in a place where you have to negotiate your 
you know, your your place, you're you're sort of like, you know, you're sort of you're paying attention more to like where people are going, and you kind of like have you know form this um, form these relationships, and you're more attentive, and that's right. And therefore, there's like like less likelihood of um, accidents, and you know, just like, mm-hmm. and it's better for traffic, some say. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Very interesting. Yeah, you definitely have a process of coming into your body when you return from Carland to New York. And it's frustrating. I had this when I returned from my my trip south. I was super uncomfortable being forced to walk around and engage with the masses of humans all the time. Um, and, and I had to, like, grow my, you know, existential car around me as I walked around. <laughs> or, like, my shell. Your carapace. And now, yes. I, I did. And I really do like Your to little be little snail. <laughs> yeah. I, yes. Absolutely. That's a great metaphor. And now I have it because I don't want to be a dead person. You know, I don't want to be like dead in my face. (laughs) I want to be present to the world, but I don't want it to, you know, make me feel uncomfortable or too vulnerable because I'm pretty sensitive. So so now I feel in line like I have my snail shell and I can go anywhere. But it, it takes a while to develop it, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. An existential snail shell. To continue talking about architecture, infrastructure, the sense of home. So I was reading this book, um, this collection of essays the other day, and um, I came across one by Joan Ackman. It's called Mirror Images, Technology, Consumption, and the Representation of Gender in American Architecture Since World War II. And it just resonated because I think a lot of these pieces that I was, mm, that were jumping at me throughout the week had to do with um, just being a woman and negotiating space. So this one, um, the essay kind of looks at the way that American architecture, how it was shaped in the years following World War Two, And basically it takes the Lever House, which is um, an, kind of an early icon of international style modernism um, and a public face of American corporate progress culture hmm. and sort of pits it against Levittown which are these afford- which oh, is an yeah. affordable um, development kind of a suburb this cookie uh, the iconic cookie the cutter suburb. that's right the first suburb where you know um, it provided this kind of illusion delusion <laughs> of domesticity it's just like ideal a series of ideal like islands of domestic bliss you know that was mm-hmm. um, the idea so, so the contrast between them is um, striking because you know one is this linear, vertically oriented glass box, which is what the lever house and what what a lot of that kind of international style corporate um, architecture of technocracy is. And, you know, Levittown is, you know, small, kind of historically oriented, you know, towards like the bourgeois ideal, you know, petite mm-hmm. petite home with a, with a little peaked roof and inside all like, you know, I don't know, shints and flurry of pink ruffles and you know all that great 1950s interior design um cluttered and i think hearkening to like almost 19th century like victoriana in some way abbreviated mm-hmm. and so the argument that joan makes here is that the international you know, this is kind of the international style of corporate architecture contained a male sphere, like a sort of production, mm-hmm. and 
uh, you know, the rationalism, like stood for rational bureaucracy, rationalism, bureaucracy, you know, like techno-scientific progress that, you know, big business and government depend upon and then, and, and production oriented essentially. And then the kind of Levittown type places of the home, uh, the female sphere, basically that was a complement to the production um, in the female culture of consumption. Mm-hmm. And so they sort of assigned this role to females as consumers. Right. And they had to consume beautifully, <laughs> apparently somebody stated And that. work. And, and work hard. And work, and work, well, work hard on maintaining the home, yes. But yeah, I just thought it was something, there's something interesting about that, like the production and the consumption. Yeah. And I think, oddly, there's certain, I guess some, I think that remains, that idea kind of remains in a way, you know, a lot of ads are... Yeah. I think, inst- like Instagram apparently is also mostly populated by women and mm-hmm. the role that's assigned to the consumer is still embellishment I guess you have to embellish the home you have to embellish the self that still kind of lingers I have not met many men at all who know how to manage their sheets <laughs> like who know how to wash their sheets when to wash their sheets like how they go on everyone <laughs> I'm calling you out everyone that I've ever dated except for one person, um, like, couldn't put sheets on the bed. Like, mm. that, edu- it, they just don't get educated in this stuff because they're expected to have a woman do this for them. And in, and yet, in this world, like, I, most of those people, like, take care of their own beds and have to take care of their own clothes, and they just don't know how to do it because no they weren't expected to learn it. They didn't have to learn it. So it's, it's interesting that the domestic is always like the last place that, or, or it's not treated like work and it's not treated like you need to have a literacy in it. And I feel like oftentimes, like there are many people, like I'm sure lots of women don't get like yeah, this I'm kind of very, education. I'm very failed in that area, but you manage somehow, learn to overuse. But like they don't respect it. And I didn't respect it until like I, you know, got weird about fabrics, you know, like I was describing before, but, um, yeah, I think it's really funny that that there was this like there is like an acculturation that happened at least in my yeah. culture that I came from of like this is what you do and this is what a man is supposed to do but you know labor itself has has diversified and changed yeah. over time. And so I've been expected to learn a lot of the ways of like making money and doing the best I can to like compete in the economy and you know and and yet they don't know how to fold a fucking sheet. It makes me crazy. Uh, well, most men, actually, the one that I encounter, it's possibly because I always, you know, I sort of gravitate toward the ones that are the opposite of me. They're usually much better at that stuff somehow. So Right, that's true. There's just something about thinking about these kind of traditional roles and and being assigned the role of a consumer because it's such a... Yeah. Well, housework, yes, but, but the consumption part, I think it's so... It never satiates, you know, the sort of deeper need somehow. If anything, uh-huh. you know, the kind of the position of being a producer is a bit more active, you know, whereas consuming it just sort of, yeah, you have no control, you know, you're just sort of like taking and taking and taking. And, they- and, and spending the money that was produced by the man, but also cho- like his choices of how to be active and his voice of how to participate in the society were what then facilitated you to like get this stuff so it's like you're given what he wants to give you i think it's the patriarchy i honestly think it was set up on purpose and like there is an argument i've heard particularly about levittown that this kind of society was invented particularly to get women back into the home because they had taken the jobs that people who were at war 
needed. So they needed self-esteem. Right. The well, guys men, coming, men came back, and so they needed the jobs back. Right? There's, there's yeah, and they, and there was this fear that men in general were going to lose their minds if they didn't have all their mm. jobs back, and if women were working and they weren't. So there was like, I believe, a forcible cultural effort to put women, ba- women back in the home, and then through this consumption culture, talk them into their role. So like, you know, all of those instruction booklets about what ha- what a good house, you know, wife mm-hmm. is and what they aren't and sure. I don't know. I have to say that working is not that great either. <laughs> so, you know, just like right. getting a right to work. I mean, it's fine, but I I just like when, right. what does one do when one doesn't really enjoy housework and one doesn't really enjoy working that's me oh but I do like making um artwork I guess which is just like you like you like to work I've seen you you're one of the hardest working people I know but you know what I mean I don't really like to have a job right it's I don't know I think there's a good question about what work is hence I dream of uh in you know idealistic society from everyone according to their abilities and to everyone according to their needs well right yeah. And I think a society, I think that society can be created, you know, and, and has been. And yeah. that's, you know, that's like the social welfare network that was set up in the 30s. Um, and before that war was created to, you know, support people to live, get their basic needs met yeah. and live according to human rights. And then, you know, and then make meaning and, and work as they need or work as they want or should yeah. or something. I do agree. So, you know, there was that sort of situation in the 50s, but then, of course, you know, we had the 60s, we had the 70s, you know, we had the 80s, and, you know, um, due to, like, a variety of factors, you know, the feminism movement and also just the overall economic needs, you know, so women joined the workforce, you know, and then... So it's like that, that kind of, like, I don't know, moral societal ideal... Um, mm-hmm. seems to have faded right and we can yeah. choose whatever we want and some right. people are choosing to turn to god yeah right there's a movement towards so there's like the home so that place of home is moving toward the monastery the nunnery right um and fundamentalism i think is the rise in religious fundamentalism is also part of that yeah i found this article i was shocked actually because i think that i have been part of this movement a little bit. Like I'm not a Catholic person and the article was about the fact that there are more millennial uh, millennials choosing to go into a nunnery now than mm. in the last two or three decades. Is that right? I was not shocked. But yes, you were me. not? I nope. mean, I, it was pretty amazing to me or to my family when I was a teenager, you know, and I said, you know, someday I want to go into a Buddhist monastery and I, I feel pretty confident that that's how I want to you know, have the end of my life look. And I still kind of feel that way. And I felt like at that moment, it felt like a really radical thing to say. But the fact that you can see this impulse in more and more people, I think that that's really interesting. And I thought that I was strange, but I think that I'm not. And um, yeah, what what's weird about that article, too, is they talk about the fact that a lot of uh, these young women they're also the age of people entering, wanting to enter the nunneries. It used to be around in their 40s, and now it's people in, who are around 24. Um, but they're also bringing Instagram with them. So it's like they're deciding that they want to have a cloistered life. I think, you know, it's interesting. They want to have a life of service. They want to have a life of structure and meaning. And they want to be, it's a little bit proselytizing. Like everybody that I saw quoted in the article, you know, was very into also like, going on the internet and converting everybody to 
uh, Catholicism and making sure everyone knew about their faith. So it's not like the old, though, I mean, you can make arguments there. I think of nunneries as being very private places and not necessarily connected to like your communion with God. Well, I think they were doing that before they joined the nunnery because you go through a certain period of in between, you know, and then you don't really do that. But right. But in the Catholic tradition, though, I mean, some of the most I was reading about the uh, communist and uh, super extreme socialist um, Catholic groups in the 60s and 70s in New York recently, and they did some of the, some of the most important social work that happened with the homeless was was done by those people, mm-hmm. and they were extreme. They were super extreme believers. Um, oh, Marxism, Christianity are not that different, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they lived in a commune, and they would. Um, it was it was amazing. They did amazing transformational work, and it, they were totally Catholic and committed in this, you know, deep service way, which I think people are looking for because they can feel a deep rupture in, I don't know, connection among others, uh, con- connection among communities, connection of an individual to themselves. Well, I've also one of the reasons why I'm not surprised is because I remember um, after the collapse of Soviet Union, you know, which was thoroughly kind of on like a official level atheistic you know so mm-hmm. when when that collapsed the first thing that happened is people were getting baptized left and right you know and kind of mm-hmm. like going back to their jewish roots and you know because people do like they really need <laughs> meaning and moral compass and sort of a higher truth right. and so when you're you know when that's not available and you know, it's not kind of, and I think people need it in kind of a, in a group way, you know, it's not really enough to believe something sometimes just mm-hmm. on your own. You sort of need, you, you need a community, you need kind of a, a coterie of people that you have these shared beliefs and then you have a sense right. of belonging. So I think right now when we're just, you know, when there's just so many, the infinite possibilities of defining yourself and, you know, defining what your beliefs are. I think some people find it really disorienting and they mm-hmm. um, long for that, like, and this is a proven, you know, a time-tested way. You know, this has, like, many centuries yeah. of history and and it's kind of romantic as well. Um, it is, yeah. And so, yeah. And permanent. Yes, and there's a predictability to it, you know, which is so reassuring. Yeah. No longer do you have to define your life um every morning um <laughs> oh oh but i have a funny comment actually speaking as which connects um it was like a little story which connects the parking lots and everything but so about a week ago i was um I got really drunk with um this guy this man and somehow in the drunken you know in the drunkenness we're sort of talking about i don't know we're just having some dramatic conversation about you know friendship versus fucking and then in the morning you know I was at home and the repairman came just was fixing the smoke alarm and I was retelling someone the story on the phone you know and he overheard and you know I was just so mortified and horrified <laughs> and so I was, just, I was just telling my friend the story you know and then we got off the phone you know and I rejoined Raphael and and just supporting him in his tasks and he was like well you know I overheard your story and you know I just you know just look look to Jesus just be a bride of Jesus and wow. you know he was like you can just have Jesus love and I wow. <laughs> so I was like should I join a nunnery you think <laughs> <laughs> so What's there, their address? So there, was that, so there was that, and he's Catholic, and he's, um, yeah, he's, um, I think he's from Mexico and Catholic, so. But I, but I liked how he was just diagnosed me and yes. <laughs> sent me off to get, you know, to get, you know, and I think it's it's comforting to know 
I think when you're in that religious context, what is the like moral, what is appropriate and what is not appropriate? Mm-hmm. I'm struggling with that now because right. I think after like being in a relationship for a long time and like really knowing where who I am and what I'm to do and how to interact with other people and I'm sort of like all over the place. <laughs> I kind of wish someone would just contain me again. Right. Well, I mean, I think that this is a good thing. It can be a really good, my opinion is it can be a really good source of uh, community seeking and community creation and, and like other relationships can be strengthened out of that. Or maybe even like a spiritual connection to something can be strengthened. Um, but it's also a really good situation to be taken advantage of because I have like, you know, the flip side to my interest in joining the monastery or the nunnery is that I have such skepticism towards religious control or spiritual control by individuals. So, yeah, I think I would have a really hard time in in the nunnery itself because I would have to get behind, you know, the system. Yeah, right. Um, entirely. And that's pretty difficult. It's not for right for everyone. Yeah. I think right. And doubt, you know, I will say just to bring back my truly existential perspective is that doubt is a very healthy thing Mm -hmm. and I think that it keeps us questioning things but it also keeps us true to our own self and our own values in a way and so like we waver between faith and doubt all of the time and I think that's just a natural way of like yes. it's kind of what, what we've been dealt as humans and with the way that we work and uh, agreed yes. yeah yes. we're not programmed to live in eternity you know we're kind of programmed to experience the here and now and negotiate social situations yeah. you know and it's interesting I think yeah we escape that finality I think people are you know it's just really trying to not think about death right now because right it seems like the progress is so you know, there's this aggressive enterprising movement towards biohacking, you know, yourself. And just, you know, it seems like there are all these, mm. you know, all these things you can do, just eat everything green and exercise all the time, you know, as though that can somehow, right. you know, keep death at bay. Of course it can't. But, yeah, and I think maybe that religious, the religious life talks about that, about death and suffering and That's right. makes it less scary, I suppose. Yeah, it normalizes it to some extent. Which is it's just so normal, but yeah. Right. I know. I mean I have interest in that too, but I, I think it's something to be walked towards like kind of very carefully and bit by bit, you know. Curiosity. Like the death like death process, you know, like what yeah. it really means. I'm friends with a lot of people at my school who are really inter- interested in palliative care and in um chaplaincy in palliative care and I'm still interested in that to some extent, but I've noticed myself kind of stepping back from that because when I was, when I'm faced with like so much suffering and the overwhelming nature of suffering of just individuals in social work that I'm trying to, my clients, that's so much, just like suffering in life sometimes is so much that, that it's, that was overwhelming to me that then the idea of suffering, the suffering of death, um, I was like, oh, I'll work on that later. <laughs> I was like, I have to work on what it means to yeah. work with, with the really face suffering, like my suffering, someone else's suffering, and then and maybe we'll talk about death every once in a while, or I'll kind of you know I'll work I'll work on that next year. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's big. It's all very big. I think it's really good just to just not deny these things that that they're big and that they matter to us and that they're creeping into our consciousness all the time to be asked to ask us to. Concern, concern ourselves with them you know mm-hmm. and um like that that morning you know that domestic domestic fear you know of of who am I what am I in the morning and 
you know, is my sheet on properly? You know, that is (laughs) really, that's that. I mean, that's really what, that's important. That's our work to do. I think, you know, quote unquote work. Sure. I don't know. It's really hard to do, but. Yeah, it grounds the soul, I think. It's it's the mundane tasks sometimes that are. That's what I am promoting at this moment. (laughs) It feels very prescient to my life, this episode, somehow. I think it's been interesting to try to find our way home and, like, find our way around Mm -hmm. some other ways people are finding their way, you know, their sense of self and their sense of place. Yeah, it's been interesting. Do you have any advice from your current perspective for our dear listeners? No, I think... That they're not asking for? I think I want them to give me advice because I'm so I really struggle as an immigrant I really struggle with a sense of home and place so I'm always wondering do I find it somewhere you know or is it inside me do I have it you know can I just manifest it or do I actually have to find a place Mm, is it inside or yeah. outside? Mm. Yeah, is it inside or outside, or does it overlap somehow? But I'm always mm. really conflicted because there's just even, even here, you know, I've been in LA for like what ten years or so, um, and in some ways I feel really connected, but mostly to people. And sometimes I do mm-hmm. have this kind of blissful appreciation of the landscape, and you know, the, the strangeness of the kind of concrete versus the verdant beauty. You know, it's kind of freeways and weird boxy concrete shacks. Mm. And then there's just glorious mountains. And anyway, sometimes I have this like appreciation of that. But I also feel quite trapped and isolated by the car. But I love my yeah. friends, you know, and then I go away and I walk around some, some city. Yeah. And then I get really excited about it. But then I wonder, oh, is it just my, you know, is it just the imagination? Because I am so good at imagining things. I feel like, you know, I can, like I have yeah. whole lives of imagination. And it's not, yeah. you know, my my interior life is just something separate from reality often. Yeah. And I don't know, it's hard to like trust yourself. Yeah. I guess I'm leaning towards the, maybe it's about just um, having an internal space and and I guess people, I do believe in the power of community as making yeah. you feel at home and welcome. Yeah, I, I, for me, I think that's like one of the only things that there is. And that feeling of like being being pretty sure when you found it and when you have that sense of community with other people that it's really important, you know? Yeah. You know, and the, and this thing of like, I like to walk around. I don't like to drive a car. I have clearly made that choice. And now... I have to live with with the consequences of that sometimes. That it's suck. a good parameter. It's good to have like a. Sp- it seems like that's a good advice, just to have a really specific parameter. Like if there's just one thing that's really really important, and there will be trouble to it. Also, you know, mm. it's sort of like I don't know. I definitely have. This is definite like Protestant Quakerist kind of. I don't know if it's Quaker, but it's just sort of like you've made this choice. This is what you want. You know, you you want to have a, a comfortable life you want to have a comfortable mind well you have to work to get it there you have to like clean Mm. the clean the room and you know like respect respect your need for care from yourself and Mm. and that it's not going to just happen overnight it's not just gonna and it, it might be the small things the small things that you've done really well you know just like doing those little tiny things to make a table nicer that will actually get you to a sense of connection and meaning to the greater world that Mm -hmm. like the small and the large are actually the same thing and they're connected but we don't believe that in our lived experience right it's like very difficult but like sometimes that for me is the way 
I've been able, and I sh- I will listen to this later when I don't believe this anymore, and I'm it will help me. But it's like that's the way to tip meaninglessness and like the sense of of being lost into mm. knowing where you are. Just like find the way that you want to be on a ta- in a table or like. I take care of my plants, you know, and mm-hmm. it's it's like a compass. Oh yeah, and caring for others as well. I think right, it's exactly. a really huge thing. Yeah, other objects, but other people. Yeah, right. And finding a way to let go of the things, or like know that you're carrying some feeling that's really heavy, or some experience that's, and and like understand that feeling, and then find a way to let that down like just let go of it or set it down somehow like in a conversation with someone you trust or like in a journal or with music or I don't know freaking out and running around I don't know but like mm-hmm. whatever it might and it might be like going out and drinking all night like that might be a thing that mm-hmm. happens you know but it's like that you have yeah that understanding it's there. And I think we all kind of manage ourselves in our own ways in that way but yeah, we know how to take care of ourselves. It's May there. we continue knowing <laughs> and yeah. learning learning more and care for ourselves and for each other. Absolutely. Amen. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Love you all. <laughs> yeah. But I do, but I do. Yeah. Well, that's us for today's episode. Mm-hmm. We welcome your feedback and tell your friends about this podcast if you want to and thanks for listening and we'll be back next week um we'll have a special guest who visited us already once are you very excited about next week's topic you'll hear from us then ciao ciao bye bye